Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode six of Data Slate Lave Radio's book review show, The Discerning Commander's Trade Companion, when looking for a good book at the spaceport. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. Joining me is our veteran explorer, bridge commander, and science fiction prophet, <laughs> John Richardson from Starfleet Comms. Hello, John. Hello, hello. You may rise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they say in the genre of SF, the ability to predict the future yes. is particularly attractive and is something that individuals, you know, are noted for. You are amongst the luminaries now. That's right. That's right. The great and the good. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> so we should probably tell our listeners what we're actually talking about last week john made a recommendation of station 11 by emily st john mandel and it was shortlisted for the clark award which we had read out all the nominees the clark award named after arthur c clark very prestigious award and it only went and won last night yay <laughs> So John, having said, "Oh yeah, I, I think we'll we'll try." Well, we both said, didn't we? We said we'd we'd have a look at the nominees yes. and kind of read them up. And I looked at it and said, "Well, I don't know if we can get through six books in about a week or two. It's going to be days, quite yeah. hard." <laughs> so in the end, you managed to get through one, and oh, I only went and won the award. Oh. Can't pick them better than that, can well, you? This so, is it. Yeah, you see, you've made the right choice getting me on the show. You need to know what you're going to pick for the Derby and the National, and uh, <laughs> who's going to win the Premier League next year. Anything we can get out of you, really, now, don't we? Yeah, you do. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to prepare you for disaster. <laughs> oh, dear. The Clark Awards, as I say, they were announced. This is down at Foils in London, where an assemblage of publishers, writers, and agents, all sorts, really, convened in foils where they could meet and discuss the six nominees. And I was following on Twitter. I'm sure other people were following on Twitter. And Pat Cadigan made the announcement of who the winner was. And there it is, Emily St. John Mandel. And uh, a win for Stations 11, which congratulations to all the finalists, I think. But at the same time, it was great to see, and it was great to see that, uh, you know, there was quite a lot of Twitter trending afterwards about it. Yes. Which is particularly good. Not not just us. No, 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 I know that. I was <laughs> saying it was a well-deserved prize, I think, because um, it was an extremely good book. I've got to, well, it is an extremely good book, and it was an extremely good read. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that, and it was exquisitely done, that book. Lovely. And from what we got from your review very unusual yeah i mean it's something that you didn't really expect you know the traveling symphony in a post-apocalyptic world <laughs> you know it's not often you'd read about something like that the way that it was written flitted backwards and forwards convincingly and there was a lot of con coincidences in it which could be misconstrued as sort of you know oh that's stretching it a little but the way it was written made it believable and that was good since that time, we've already seen that um, if anyone's checking Amazon, Station Eleven has now shot up to the Movers and Shakers chart, so it's uh, it's doing in incredibly well. Apparently, uh, tweeted by one of the publishers uh, about an hour or two ago that it's it's selling now something like two hundred odd percent more than it was selling before. Wow! So immediately, you can see the effect of the award. You can see the effect of, of the exposure, which is great. So. More power to, to the series, really, and hopefully 
the others are, are just as good. Indeed. Excellent. Well done. Okay, so we're going to move on, and we thought that tonight, considering we're recording this evening on the UK general election night, where I have been out and done my voting, and I know, John, you've been out and done your voting, mm-hmm. and also done your educating of the next generation on how they do their voting. That's right, yes, so took the kids along and uh, told them about you know how we fought for the right to vote and all of that business, and uh, unfortunately one of mine took a toy gun along. And um, that was okay, though. Once the general hubbub had died down and the police had gone away, it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially, we thought that in keeping with the spirit of kind of investing in the future, in putting our crosses in boxes for the future that we wanted to see, we'd have a bit of a conversation about visions of the future. Now, science fiction's obsessed with this, Mm. Uh, really is obsessed with, with sort of predicting things, with invention with finding how people are, what's going to be the next thing, whether it's artillery guns from H.G. Wells or it's the hoverboard from Back to the Future. We do, we have this obsession about this prediction lark and more often than not, the ones that we always remember are the ones that we actually see, whereas the ones we don't remember are kind of like science fiction's shameful past (laughs) where they get hidden away and we kind of forget about just... (gasps) how wrong that particular prediction yeah. was. So I thought we'd kind of have a go at maybe some that are good and some that are bad. So can you think of a memorable prediction that you saw in fiction, you read about in fiction, that's kind of come true? Hmm. You put me on the spot now. Uh, the communicator. Okay. Yeah. So essentially that's kind of true, isn't it? Yeah. The mobile phone uh, scenario. So that has worked out well. Where did you first? Well, of course, I'm going to say Star Trek, aren't I? I I thought you would. (laughs) 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 So that that's come true. They're looking at the tricorder Mm -hmm. now. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, there's some efforts to make one of those. So I think, in terms of things that have come true, that has. uh, What else has come true? Automatic cars. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's come true. Okay, they're in development stage, but it's still there. Yeah. Um, Talking to computers, yeah, it's come true. They can understand a single person's voice command. It's a little bit more complex when you've got a whole family talking to it. Mm. What else? Well, what do you think, Alan? Well, I was kind of thinking, I mean, one of the main things that, that's really impressive in terms of how it influenced things is when you look at how much Asimov's ideas of robots and his ideas of the mind of a robot mm-hmm. kind of influenced a lot of thinking around actual robot design and how robots would work, how artificial intelligence might work. Uh, And we've seen an awful lot of scenarios of different things related to artificial intelligence and experimentation with it, which I think is interesting. The aforementioned artillery gun, I read H.G. Wells as a teenager, Mm -hmm. and I listened to War of the Worlds long time prior to that as a a young young kid in my uncle's house on big headphones for the entire day. It just took the entire day away. But the thing about artillery, it's the one thing about H.G. Wells that people don't remember or don't realize, you know, in this day and age, is that actually the artillery guns that they were using, they didn't have artillery guns at the point in time when the book was written. So it just feels like it's all part of the same thing. And it feels like it's natural for the time period, but actually it wasn't. 
So I found that particularly interesting when I, I found out so that was, know, about it. So that was a near future prediction for him then? Yeah, very much so, yeah. very much so. I mean, obviously, there aren't any Martians that we know of. They don't wander around in tripods and get killed by the common cold. But the idea of bacteria in the way in which it, it works through in that story is interesting. Is, the yeah. other book that was quite formative for me about concepts that I've seen echoed today, although in a slightly different way, was 1984. I always have a wry smile when... I see just how much of 1984 has come through. Or it's turned into elements of popular culture. Mm. Okay, so yeah, we have cameras on street corners and stuff, but apparently it's fine. That's right. And we watch a show called Big Brother, but apparently it's fine. Yeah. And we have a late night comedy show where we consign all the rubbish of our society into Room 101. (laughs) And it's just interesting to me that... How do we have lots of people producing loads of misinformation? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you could even go down to the the sort of the language because, of course, he he did quite a lot on thinking about how future colloquialisms would work Mm. and double think and things like that. So you've got terms and terminology. I'll square that Um, circle off with you later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So in keeping with that then, so we've got things that we remember that are particularly influential. What would you like to see come true? Well, uh, you were talking about AIs. I would like personal AIs of some sort. Your very own sort of personal assistant. I think that would be quite cool. So you've seen the film Her then, yeah? No. Okay, all right, recommendation for you. It's Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson plays the part of his personal AI, and um, it's the development of her as a a personality. Very interesting. I'm going to be a bit, perhaps, parochial (laughs) and say alternative energy sources. Yes. So we have solar panels on the house. Mm -hmm. We both drive gas cars, and at the time when we got those gas cars, they were the lower mission of their time. Now, of course, they're electric cars and hybrids and what have you and that's probably where our next purchases as cars are going to go did you see the stuff about the tesla battery yes i did i follow uh, that elon musk isn't it yeah elon musk yep. yeah so uh, i follow him on twitter so i saw that presentation come out and uh, i find it very interesting that huge battery if he's clever with this and gets one of these installed in each home he's going to be very very rich and we are going to be better off energy-wise, generally, uh, from an efficiency perspective. Absolutely. I, it's really interesting for me, because we got solar panels installed yeah. about three, four years ago. And when we got them installed, I actually asked the company about the idea of a battery system and saying, you know, what would the possibility be of, because, of course, it's capturing all this energy yeah. in the daytime. Yeah. Can we not store it and then use it at night? And they said, well, yeah, we could quote you this. We've talked to a couple of companies in, in Europe on how you do this. Basically... We need to build you another garden shed mm-hmm. and we'll have to fence that shed off and lock it and you can't go within 10 feet of that shed ever. <laughs> Which is not something you're going to be doing, is it? <laughs> so half my garden taken up with this, this you know, little power plant yeah. that's going to store my energy. I looked at that and went, thanks, no thanks. Yeah. And then I looked into a German company as well who were producing these huge things that basically went in your cellar Mm. and they were massive. Then you look at the Elon Musk device and it's almost like a boiler, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like the Apple-style battery, (laughs) really. It it, it just looks good. I mean, that's that's one of my visions of the future anyway, which was better fuel management, and that comes down to that. So, okay, so that's our visions. Now, I've said that 
science fiction has this shameful, embarrassing history of predictions that didn't come true and that weren't legitimate and sort of crazy predictions or, or things that are, you know, are kind of swept away. Now, it's, it's interesting in that some of them we kind of still go, oh, yeah, but there's quite a few that, that actually people just kind of ignore and they kind of step around rather than, you know, sort of accepting them. Yeah, the, the idea of flying cars by this date or by, you know, this by this mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So what's your crazy retro prediction, John? What can you think of from all the science fiction you've read and watched and maybe experienced? What's the craziest, silliest one that didn't the craziest, come through? craziest, silliest one? Mm. Uh, the Jetson style hover car. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. Personal spaceships, which I guess is also Jetson style. Medical robots that actually work. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, you know, you could think of silent running there or. Uh... Yeah. Huey, Louie, and Dewey, wasn't it? Yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah. If you just replay that scene in your mind where he fixes his leg, he puts in new program cartridges for them. Yes. And, of course, that film was in 1977. So, yeah, actually, that you know, about five, six years later, you had computers with cartridges. And, you know, I guess you had computers with cartridges then, but they're quite, you know, quite interesting. But when you think of how much data would have been on that cartridge, probably less than a K. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the complexities of surgery. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> so... Other useful robots in any way, shape, or form, really. To When I say useful, I don't mean factory robots, because clearly they're yeah. useful, and they do work, and they're, in, you know, they're all over the place. But I just mm. mean your general walking, talking, here's your cup of tea, sir, robots. Yeah, oh, God, there was an you obsession know. with that in the 80s, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, it's like, you know... We'll go make you tea robot that, that kind of <laughs> and you saw these things for like, you know, a couple of thousand pounds and you think, ah, oh, you know, I'm not gonna That's right. buy that. But wouldn't it be cool? And of course they were crap. They were crap. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise we'd all have That's them right. now, wouldn't we? So I mean you now you got those those cleaner ones, haven't you? The cleaner ones that go on the floor actually are quite good. Yeah, that's quite good. I want something which is not a robot, I guess, but more of a an AI. Uh, domed cities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that didn't come true, and you would have thought that by now, with all the pollution, China would have some. Yeah, or, or you know, I mean, we see, we see one or two shopping malls, don't we, with, with a nice little dome, but it's always affectation, it's oh, not yeah. really... Oh, you, you want your proper okay. domed city with the sort of uh, translucent uh, mass transit tubes. <laughs> yeah. Humidity control and the, the caves of steel and all the rest That's of right, that. That's right, yeah. Okay. One's from me. Okay, so one I, I dug out was the little tete-a-tete between H.G. Wells and Jules Verne mm. over the first men in the moon where Jules Verne rubbished H.G. Wells' ideas about the mysterious substance that allowed people to defy the laws of gravity and extolled about the virtues of his own writing where he was using realistic technology by firing a cannon and sending people to the moon that way mm. so obviously that's not something that uh, that we had happen <laughs> tomorrow's world was fantastic in the 1980s at, mm. at just sort of highlighting all these amazing things which you could sort of browse through and say well that didn't happen <laughs> 
and we've kind of forgotten and that's what we do we kind of forget the ones that didn't happen and we only remember what the ones that yeah. that did and hail the great predictor despite the fact that they probably put out 20 things and only the ones that we do remember are the ones that you know that we remember them for other things like for instance the submarine from voyage to the bottom of the sea yeah. you know that didn't exactly come we haven't got a tracy island yeah, no international... Well, we do have an international rescue, but they're nowhere near as cool. <laughs> you know, they're, they're good people. I'm not dissing the real international you can, rescue. You can tell where I'm coming. I'm, I'm the more sort of um, <laughs> <laughs> trashy science fiction than else. Not that I'm saying that is trashy, but you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, well, it's popular culture. Popular culture, you know. culture it's, yeah. It's, so, it's things that, uh, things that we, what else we record. We not have? I don't think we're quite on target for Blade Runner and replicants and... LA with the Jets of Fire. No, but we, I think we, I think that's 2019. I think we're due that. That's right. We um, I tell you with the vision technology, the imaging technology, though we're not too far away because where he was looking yeah, at that uh, for that scale, that piece of skin or whatever, and yeah. the other bit that seemed to hang true on that was the genetic modification and creation of the organs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, all this from Philip K. Dick originally in One Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. Incredible, incredible that those things do kind of match up. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that struck me as well just the other day, and it's something that we, we most of us use at some point now in our cars, is the sat-nav. So yeah. that was something that did actually come true, and mm. uh, it was featured in a couple of things in various formats, and what a great device really. Hmm. You know, it leads to atrophy of the brain, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what a great device. So, I think we've gone through a few. We'll probably hark back to this topic a little bit when we come into the reading recommendations, yeah. but I know there's two or three that apply to my choice this week, right. so we'll head for an advert break and we'll be right back. Space can be lonely, but sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth. Partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquada. Or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special. And will let nothing disturb you. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. We're back, so John, after last week's Derby winner, <laughs> what gem have you found amid the genre this week? Well, I have found Last Light by Alex Scarrow. And Last Light is one of my favourite topics, which is the post-apocalyptic world, I guess. Oh, there's a surprise. <laughs> Sorry. I will go into proper sci-fi next time, okay? It's it's all proper science well, fiction. Yes, it is, but, uh, you know, the, the more traditional type, shall I say. Okay. okay. So you you will exit dystopia. I will. I will. I will I will okay. move on for that. I am I realise I'm getting a bit samey. <laughs> so but this one is 
an extremely good read, I think. Mm-hmm. Having enjoyed it, it's a real page turner. And it also strikes me as something that could very well happen. Mm-hmm. In fact, it led me to start thinking very seriously about how much food stocks we've got in the house and if we've got any first aid kits and what we, what would we do if. So... You started building a concrete bunker under your house. <laughs> yes. Well, funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll go into a bit of a blurb about the book, but basically it's one of these which is about civilization breaking down, and the reason it breaks down is because we've hit peak oil. And what that basically means is the oil supply has dwindled, and if you may or may not be aware, and the book will certainly educate it on it, once your oil supplies go, pretty much everything that runs requires oil. So mm. everything stops. So I'll go into this anyway. It's, and it's also got the, um, the usual piece where um, there's a member of the family in one part of the country. There's another member of a family in another part of the country. They've all got to get back together. right? And then there's a plot around some shadowy people who are intent on killing all of this family. And I won't go into it any more than that because... All of that is available on the cover of the actual book. So I don't want to go into what actually happens because that would be a spoiler. Sure. This is uh, the description. So it seems to be a very normal Monday morning, but in the space of only a few days, the world oil supplies have been severed and at a horrifying pace, things begin to unravel everywhere. And this is no natural disaster. Someone is behind this. Jenny is stuck in Manchester, fighting desperately against the rising chaos to get back to London, where her children are marooned as events begin to spiral out of control. Riots, raging fires, looting, rape and murder. In the space of a week, London is transformed into a lawless and anarchic vision of hell. Jenny's estranged husband, oil engineer Andy Sutherland, is stranded in Iraq with a company of British soldiers desperate to find a way home to his family, trapped as transport links and the very infrastructure of daily life begin to collapse around him. And against all this, a mysterious man is tracking Andy's family. He'll silence anyone who might be able to reveal the identities of those behind this global disaster. It seems the same people who now have a stranglehold on the future of civilization have flexed their muscles before at other significant tipping points in history, and they are prepared to do anything to keep their secret and their power safe. Mm. There you go. So one thing that struck me really was the realism of the book. So there are descriptions, obviously, with it taking place in Britain. It was very easy for you to actually understand what Alex was trying to say and the areas in which he was saying it. So, you know, he was talking about areas of Manchester, for instance, and you've got British terms in there and stuff like this. And it was all very clear. When it came to the cabinet office and stuff that was happening in uh, Cobra, Basically, it also seemed very familiar, even though none of us really know what happens in Cobra other than the fact it's a cabinet meeting room. It it just struck me as really believable as well, the way he actually described the moment when the oil cut off to three or four days later when it's absolute pandemonium. And mm. you can see how things can develop. And when it gets worse and worse and worse, and my goodness, it does get worse, you just find yourself really worried about what's going to happen. So it drew me in, not by pricking my sort of paranoia a little, but by being believable in terms of what could actually happen and describing it in such a way that, yeah, you know, he's right. It could. So 
with the characters, I'm assuming from what you've described and also from, from what's there in the blurb, initially then they are essentially there as sort of everyday people as a witness to what's going on. But then gradually as this sinister organisation starts to sort of pursue the main character, mm-hmm. Andy, you've then got a little bit of moving them into the centre of events. Would that be right? Yeah, so you've seen it from their separate perspectives but from their viewpoint if you like yeah definitely you've just seen it all unravel around them so you've seen it through their eyes definitely yeah yeah but there's a type of science fiction isn't there about how essentially it's like citizen science fiction where if the world is changing Mm. something is happening martians are invading oil's been cut off it snows forever a great barrier descends upon the earth any of these things happen that are sort of disaster or or changing to the world this idea of citizen science fiction is kind of this idea that you're just a person powerless witnessing it yes do, do you see what i mean oh yeah definitely yeah there's no way they can resolve it mm. yeah so. but it, it sounds a little bit like they sort of do that but then they move it slightly because if he's someone who they're trying to silence i would guess he's become quite central to what happened or happens so he becomes perhaps more important does that Yes, but he's important because of something that happened at the beginning, not during. Right, okay. But I guess that sense becomes more prevalent later on as the story progresses. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give too much away, though. Sorry if I'm supposing, but yeah, it it is just interesting, and I think it's, it's an interesting theme, and it's particularly an interesting theme to explore this week in that talking about this idea of sort of the small person amidst the wider society actually... It's a a feeling that we have a lot, you know, you feel certainly where we're looking today at the idea of the election. You know, there are many people that talk about not voting. And of course, they talk about not voting because they don't feel like they can have any effect in relation to what is happening. And actually, that's something that science fiction reflects in particular types of scenario. You know, when you you have the sort of witness drama, like I said, with War of the Worlds, it is just a person. Yeah telling us what is happening around them. Yeah, well, that's definitely Um, what's happening here. The thing that strikes me about this is it's not just the fact that it's a witness perspective and all of that. It's the fact that it could happen. (laughs) (laughs) So he's he's clearly gone into a lot of research over this. There's a couple of errors. You know, he talks about the M1 being near Birmingham, for instance, and it's not. (laughs) But I I only picked that up in a review that I read. When I was actually reading the book, he talks about the main motorway and I didn't click he meant it as the M1 so I never really understood what he was talking about when going on about Birmingham but do you know what I mean someone's obviously interpreted that and and said this is not accurate but when you're reading the book it doesn't really matter because the point being that at a motorway service station well you know science fiction fans can be a little bit keen on the minutiae can't they yeah so yeah so it was um but some of the stuff that happened there for instance and now that you know the scene is in there Everything, a person who would normally be as sane as you or I, and I use that term loosely, um, (laughs) devolves into an almost animal-like state almost immediately when the right buttons are pushed. And to see that happen in a convincing manner as well was breathtaking. So, yeah, it's excellent. It's good. And there is a sequel, which I've also read, called Afterlight, and that is really good. It takes place 10 years later. So again, you know, we're we're kind of coming back to a theme a little bit from last week in that the idea of regression and the hierarchy of needs going down and and going back to those base needs after getting into a position of homeostasis where 
you're quite happy to explore the higher needs that you're after and then coming back to needing to just find food yeah just to be warm you know and i guess taking it from a, a point of view of removal makes you appreciate what you have it does yes that sense comes across really strong as well whereas in the the last book i was talking about station 11 it almost looks fondly at things like uh, monitors and tvs and refrigerators this is very gritty in terms of you're not not looking at things fondly at all you're absolutely desperate for these things to be back because literally people are dying on street corners so there's a definite feel of people being really desperate (laughs) i'm trying to what's what's the word there's a feeling of desperatism Desperation. That's the one I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, I believe desperatism is a social movement for, for political parties, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know, when you're thinking of a word, you're thinking, mm, what is it? What is it? If I repeat yeah. another word repeatedly. <laughs> okay, so after all that doom and gloom, where can we buy this amazing I'm so book? Sorry. <laughs> It's not that bad. You can buy it on uh, Amazon. The Kindle edition is four thirty one. Uh, hardcover is six eighteen. The paperback is eight ninety nine. Yeah, so it's yes. more expensive than the hardcover. Yeah, and you've also got the fact that it's been out for a couple of years, so it's got the used and new options, yes. which allow you to browse through and find something there. And there is also an audio CD. Slash audiobook version for twenty eight twenty five. Yeah. So, well, all of these links, incidentally, will appear on the Lave Radio website as soon as the episode is concluded from its live broadcast. We post it straight up so that you can download it, and uh, then you can follow the links to the books that we've recommended. Yeah, can I read a little bit? Of course, you can. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right here we go. Jenny twisted in her seat and studied the pavilion anxiously, half expecting a swarm of people to suddenly emerge from it and charge them down, hell-bent on pulling them out of the car and ripping their throats out. My God, doesn't this feel just like that? Like one of those crazy zombie movies? This whole situation was like some post-apocalyptic scenario, the glimmering firelight from the bonfire, the debris and detritus strewn across the tarmac, the flickering torchlight and the frantically scrabbling crowd inside the building, the noise, the chaos. Paul drove across the car park towards the exit leading on the slip road that led out onto the motorway and headed south once more. She watched the service station in the wing mirror until it disappeared from view. My God, this is how it is after only four days. It's quite referential too, isn't it? Mm. One of the things that we kind of talk about in writing science fiction is you... uh, I've seen on several writing advice websites where people have said, oh, be very careful with modern references. Mm. If you're writing in the future, you've got to be very careful. If you put in a company name and that company goes bust in five years, then you've dated your book. And actually, it's not really like that. Mm. What happens is that the brand names become anchors for the reader's memory. So yes, okay, if you put a brand name in that a modern reader is perhaps going to go, who, Mm. what, and really not know, then it might be something that they will ignore, they won't get the resonance, Yeah, but they still get it, even if it's something that's kind of gone. So Atari in Blade Runner, references to your Boeing in Red Mars when we talked about it the other Mm. week. You know, references to those kind of companies, it still it still works. Yeah. You know, it still kind of works. And and here, where they're referencing popular culture of a zombie movie, 
Yeah. It's kind of slightly sardonic. You're in a, a post-apocalyptic, desperate situation where people are fighting over food, and they're not zombies, but it's like a zombie movie. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> kind of quite cyclical, isn't it? It, is. it sort of goes round in a circle. Yeah. So, it's good. so yeah, very interesting. Okay, we're going to head for an advert break, and then we'll come back with my book choice. Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Pew 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 pew. Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging. fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. Navy. We want you for Adventures Unlimited. Just last week I was mixing Sidewinder Slammers at a seedy space bar. I wasn't even pilot registered. And now I have a ship and a basic starting mission for the Federal Navy. Owing to recent actions in the Lave region, the Federal Navy now seeks to recruit another 1,000 entry-level pilots. We need you to add your strength to our military machine. I'm going to see the galaxy. We have missions for all pilots, regardless of combat experience or flight hours. Come and talk to us and we'll get you on the military ladder. Join the Federal Navy. Make a real pilot of yourself. Or die trying. Wait, what's that? Is, that? is that a ship coming? Are they looking for me? What do they? We're going to move on now to my book choice. And I think we kind of strangely coming together on a theme here, John, mm. in that I've gone for Gemini Gambit by D. Scott Johnson. Now, the interesting thing with this is that D. Scott Johnson emailed me directly to ask me to review this book for SF Books. So I have finished the review and it went up to the database yesterday and it's due out uh, in the next week or two. Now, the whole reason I'm kind of prepared to review things that are, are from major publishers, last week obviously we talked a little bit about Chris Beckett, but I'll also review stuff that people just send me, because you know, I think it's important to you know, look at all sorts of cross-sections, whether someone's got a publisher, whether they haven't got a publisher, whether they're with a major, whether they're with an independent press or whatever. Gemini Gambit is on Kindle for one ninety nine, and it's excellent. It really is excellent. This is a book 
written about a near future society where we're perhaps one or two generations in front of where we are today Mm -hmm. and in this near future society you have the sort of the evolved version of the internet which has a a virtual reality component you have first person shooters we start in the middle of the warhawk fps world tournament which is kind of a bit similar to call of duty or something along those lines Ah. we have the connections to you know to the way in which virtual reality works we have the whole ideas of, of brands we have modern brands we have things like music that you know today is kind of referred to as old school in this future so it's kind of it's very very current culture aware and is making use of that current culture to set its context so it's been very cleverly done to sort of give you those links to how things work and where we've discussed about the idea of future prediction, because it's so near future, you actually you see an awful lot of the references and the ideas being things that we have today, and they're kind of just taken just that little step further. Mm-hmm. So you were talking earlier about auto-driving cars. Yep. Yeah, there is a, a big scene with uh, one of the characters who drives a car all across country to get somewhere, and then he has to send the car back. And so they program the auto system, and it just sends it back. Mm. So I'm going to go through the blurb. Let's go and have a look here. I must say, Alan, I I really do enjoy books that do use that near future technique with, you know, they extrapolate a little bit of what we've got now and and just give that little tweak to something. So, yeah, that's a really great idea. Fantastic. And it just adds that element of um, authenticity, doesn't it, really, to the book? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I take it, have you read William Gibson? I haven't, no. Okay, so William Gibson's Neuromancer was one of the biggest mm. things to sort of come out. The late 70s, the early early 80s, really, really came out. I think it was 1980 it was released. Yeah. But it came out and it's sort of one of the, the, the first pieces in the cyberpunk movement. And it really had this visceral quality to the way in which he described virtual reality, to the way in which he described computers, the way in which he sort of extemporized forwards. And he uses all the brand names. He uses Sony as a device. Mm. But it's, of course, it's only become a device because of the fact that the company owns the patent to whatever the you know the object is and so on and so forth. So it, it's really quite clever in that it uses the language that he had at the time to then sort of extemporize forwards. And this is really like a modern neuromancer. It's not quite got the same bite because Neuromancer is quite dark and this is quite dark. But there's elements to Neuromancer that make it quite visceral that aren't quite here. But it's, you know, it's no worse for that. Mm. And it's certainly a simple story. It's basically fugitives on the run with people chasing them, you know. Cool. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so let's read the blurb. Kimberly Tran is in hiding accidentally, but sort of on purpose. Flash freezing the son of a drug kingpin tends to require it. Unfortunately, the transition from international computer hacking badass to night manager at Taco Bell has left her life wanting. The virtual combat realm of Warhawk lets her take out her frustrations with a sniper rifle. And with a gun, she travels. Then the impossible happens. A complete stranger knocks on her virtual door, accidentally thrusting her into the spotlight where private security firms, the FBI, the Bolivian Mafia and her mum can find her. Stuff always happens, they say. It usually happens to her. So it's quite short and to the point, isn't it, in terms of, yeah. uh, of what we've got as a blurb there. Yeah. It sort of uh, sort of gives us a clear indication of uh, you know what we're we're there to expect. But it really it belies the writing. 
because what he's managed to do very cleverly is he levers together the layers in a really interesting way. And this is the way in which it sort of invokes Gibson, the way in which he deals with virtual reality, the way in which he discusses the processes that different intelligences use to traverse the new internet, to find information, to search down things and so on and so forth. They feel so familiar, but they also feel very strange. And you kind of have that straddle between those two points. It's really, really interesting. So, okay, so I've got a little bit in chapter eight here, and I'm just going to read you that. Okay. Chapter eight, Spencer. He'd set a record. After 14 hours, two soda bottle bathroom breaks and a gas tank now full of fumes, Spencer finally pulled up outside Mike's hospital. It was like someone had kicked over an anthill. People were running everywhere. He might actually manage to pull this rescue off. The doors of the ER opened and he yelled, Oh my God, Dad, Dad, has anyone seen my dad? He stumbled away from a gurney, shoved through the ambulance door. A woman to his right bellowed commands at the EMTs. She was wearing at least four phones around her neck. Spencer figured she had to be the head nurse. He rushed over and skidded to a stop in front of her desk. He had to look the part. Dad's in trouble. Gotta find Dad. Oh, please, let Mike's host be over 21. Beer and cigarettes were definitely on the menu tonight. He released the step three attack he'd cooked up into the hospital's network. But it wasn't a sure thing. The longer it took her to pay attention to him, the better off they would be. Really, though, it couldn't be that hard. The nurse was a mundane and well past 40. 28 seconds? 29? Yes! 30 seconds is all he needed. Name? Spencer Blaylock. My dad is Marshall Blaylock. He was... She held up her finger and tapped on controls, only she could see. Spencer stopped and crossed his arms, waiting for the ID he'd faked to check out. He's in room 8. Through those doors, she gestured to her right. There you go. So it gives you a, a fairly clear idea in that you can kind of see... It's very modern, but it just has these one or two little tweaks. Yeah. That's kind of the way in which it... Because you, know, you, can, you can see that scene, but he's able to then drop a virus straight onto the computer network while standing in front of her, yeah. which is because he's hooked into the internet permanently on like a, a keychain phone, which they, you know, they all seem to have a, a necklace phone. Essentially, that becomes their method of, of locking onto the internet. And so he's basically multitasking as he's standing in front of her by hacking into the hospital computer. Mm. The structure of the book seems interesting with these short chapters. He does that very well. It's something I do as a writer, so I can kind of tip my hat and, and admire this, in that he has very short chapters through it. And the way in which he uses those chapters is he's very aware at the end of the chapter that the scene is launching you into the next scene. He also flips the perspectives, so you know, you're know you going from one to the other quite a lot. Later on, you start to worry a little bit that the criminals or the, the fugitives are making sloppy mistakes, mm. because about four chapters later, you see the clue being picked up by the pursuit. Right. And you start to, as that handoff continues, you start to notice... What that you know, you're you're kind of sitting there going, oh, they're going to get that, <laughs> and you're starting to see where the mistakes are being yeah. made. It does make you think, are they being a bit too sloppy? But actually, you know, some of the things that you think they're going to pick up, they don't pick up, and you're not actually sure who's going to pick up the clue. So because there's a multitude of pursuit, so it could be the FBI, it could be the Bolivian mafia, it could be someone else that you know that picks up the the specific right. clue that they left behind. So, yeah, so I, I think because the device is used, you know, you do start to sort of 
look for it. You're looking for what the clue is that they're going to leave behind as as you go on and through. But um, but it's great. It's a really good read. It's not you know not over described. The characters got some lovely different voices between them. I'm not going to give anything away about the detail of of the character you know about Kimberly Tran because you've you've got the stuff that's in the blurb and the stuff that's here. Spencer's quite interesting. He's a kid from high school, and the guy he's going to pick up, Mike is probably the most interesting character of the story. But you'll have to read it to find out about him. Ooh, right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll have a look at that one as well. (laughs) I can't keep up with all these books, you know. (laughs) Uh, You're just just so bad. Okay, so that's Gemini Gambit Mm. by D. Scott Johnson. That's available on Amazon on Kindle for $1.99. It's then available on paperback for nine seventy four, and then there is a hardcover option at sixteen nineteen, and there is a used option at sixteen pounds twenty. So somebody obviously wanted to make a profit, <laughs> a one penny profit, bless them. But certainly, I think this is with the fact that it's one ninety nine, and I'm aware I publish some work at around this price on Kindle. Uh, some of my Wissamere books are around this price. This is a book that's very very good, and actually. It probably deserves to be a couple of pounds more than that. Right. Mm. Praise indeed. Okay, so that about does it for Data Slate this week. We've been through our reading choices and we've talked a little bit about the future. By the time this comes out, I guess we'll have a new government in place in the United Kingdom. Whatever that future may be, I'm sure we will have to endure it. (laughs) And at some point I'll be joining John in his basement behind the concrete walls. And getting ready to open a tin of beans. That's right, share a tin of beans. Whilst, whilst we wait for the oil to run out. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at laveradio.com, Facebook slash laveradio, at laveradio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozza 101 to your Skype contacts. You can also join our TeamSpeak server, where commanders of Elite Dangerous come to hang out for a chat laveradio.teamspeak3.com You can find more information about Starfleet Comms over on the website starfleetcoms.com where you can catch up with Commander Max Torps as he explores the galaxy in Elite Dangerous. And, well, he's not going to be around next week. So (laughs) you're going to have to uh, catch up with John over there for the next fortnight. Mm. As yet, as to who is going to host with me, is yet to be decided. I've already put the itching powder in the seat, so they're not going to stay there for long. (laughs) (laughs) So join us again next week for another episode. Good night, Commanders, and travel safe. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.